Our scripture lesson is from the book of Daniel, the fourth chapter, verses 34 through 37, and our subject, humanism. Daniel 4, 34 through 37. And at the end of the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? At the same time my reason returned unto me, and for the glory of my kingdom mine honor and brightness returned unto me, and my counselors and my lords thought unto me. And I was established in my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added unto me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are truth, and his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. When humanism entered into the church, it very quickly entered into all of life. In the 19th century, very early, revivalism became radically humanistic. And as a result, the churches as a whole became humanistic in their emphasis. Previously, it had been the standard position of all churches that, as the Westminster Catechism stated it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All churches recognized that this was the essence of man's calling. That man was to seek, as our Lord said, first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But now all these things became inverted. It became the accepted view that it was God's chief end to glorify man and to enjoy him forever. The first concern of man became his own salvation, not the glory of God. And when man's salvation becomes man's chief concern, then as he approaches God, what he is basically and essentially concerned with is life insurance or fire insurance. He wants a policy against disaster, against hell, against trouble. And so he becomes self-seeking as he approaches Christianity. Salvation is important, but the glory and the will of God, the kingdom of God, must come first. As a result of all this, which began to take over the churches in the 1820s, by the middle of the century, popular literature began to sing the glories of man and of God's duty to act as man's faithful ally and servant. It was seen as Christ's duty to judge man on man's own terms. 
terms. Let us examine one popular poem of the day which expresses the faith of America in the latter half of the last century. A poem that was in textbooks was exceedingly popular. It was a poem by John Milton Hay entitled Jim Bloodsoe or the Prairie Bell. Now some of you may recall this. Hay was a very important man. His thinking was a watershed of the popular thinking of his day. He was secretary to Abraham Lincoln when Lincoln was in the White House. He was assistant secretary of, Hay, of uh, state under President Hayes. Under McKinley, he was first ambassador to Great Britain and then secretary of state. And he was also Theodore Roosevelt, secretary of state. He was a very important figure in formulating such things as the open door policy in China, the acquisition of the Panama Canal, canal, and many, many other things. His poem reflects not only his thinking, but the thinking of his era. Jim Bledsoe of the Prairie Bell is a poem, a long one, about Jim Bledsoe, a riverboat engineer on the Mississippi. Described as no saint, as a very profane man, with one wife in Natchez under the hill and another one here in Pike. A thoroughly profaned, a profane man, but in his defense, Hay says, he was no liar. And he writes, and this was all the religion he had, to treat his engine well, never be passed on the river, to mind the pilot's bell. And if ever the prairie bell took fire a thousand times, he swore, He'd hold her nozzle again the bank till the last soul got ashore. Now the prairie bell grew old, but Bloodsoe still refused to be passed on the river. Then along came the Movistar, a far better boat. It was obvious that the Movistar, the far superior boat and a newer one, could beat the prairie bell. But Jim Bledsoe refused to be passed. And so against all common sense and in violation of everything that an engineer should do, he demanded that the stokers fire the furnace beyond all common sense to the destruction of the boat. He was determined he was either going to beat the move of star or go down. The result was the fire and the end of the boat. Bloodsoe headed the boat to the shore and everybody's life was saved except Bloodsoe, who was the cause of it all. He was a profane man, a godless man, a bigamist, a man who had just gambled with the lives of all the passengers, even though they survived except for himself. He destroyed the property of the owners and of all the passengers. But for Hay, one of the great men of the last century, Jim Bledsoe is still a hero, and he concludes the poem thus, He weren't no saint, but a judgment I'd run my chance with Jim alongside of some pious gentlemen that wouldn't have shook hands with him. He's seen his duty a dead sure thing and went for us there and then, and Christ ain't going to be too hard on a man that died for a man.
Now, that sums up a very popular poem and faith of the last century. This was once in the textbooks. If you didn't study it, your parents certainly did. They read it in their English or American literature poems, in anthologies, memorized it. It summed up the faith of the day, and it is rubbish. Here is Hayes' version of Rousseau's natural man, naturally good. No matter what he did, how could Christ refuse such a he-man? Why, he would have to open up hell, heaven, rather than hell, for Jim Bloodsoe. If anything, things have become far worse since then. That was humanism. Now we have humanism gone to sea developed to its logical conclusion. So that now, Christ isn't even in the picture to open up heaven for Jim Bloodsoe. Man as he is, we are told, needs no salvation. Whatever he is, he is good. And so the thinkers today and the humanists say that man's only problem is that Christianity is trying to tell him that he is a sinner when he is naturally good. Since Kinsey, it has become a very common faith that any and all sexual acts that man is capable of performing are therefore natural. And what is natural, Kinsey said, is moral. And one writer in the school of Kinsey today has recently said that man needs no saving except from Christianity. But for biblical faith, salvation is from sin into the service of God to exercise dominion under him. For humanism, salvation is from the idea of sin now and of being a sinner into the glorification and service of man, whatever he is and whatever he does. It is deliverance into going your own way and doing your own thing. Reese, a humanist of a generation ago, wrote in 1927 in a humanist declaration, and I quote, Humanism is the conviction that human life is of supreme worth and consequently must be treated as an end, not as a means, unquote. Moreover, so that we would not miss the point, Reese went on to say, man is not to be treated as a means to the glory of God. The Westminster Catechism said the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. This is typical of orthodox theology. The glory of God is primary and man is made secondary. The result is that today, in most religious circles, man is thought of only as an instrument in the hands of God. The event, likewise, is said to be in the hands of God. Unquote. Well, we can at least give Reese credit for logic. Events are either in the hands of God or in the hands of man. Either God is primary and ultimate, or man is. Humanism insists on the ultimacy of man. Reese tells us that humanism holds to man's 
native and essential work as against the work of God. And he says that man is not to be treated as a means to cosmic ends. Man must fix his attention, he tells us, on himself and on no other standard save himself. Reese went on to attack the idea of a sense of ought, of moral imperative, that there was something man had to do, some requirement he had to fulfill. The only ought, he said, is what man wills. So that there is no law beyond man and what man wills. Now, Reese was still ridiculous enough to believe that out of this he could bring forth some kind of good society. The Marquis de Sade almost two centuries ago was more logical. He saw that humanism requires total egoism and total anarchism. Polanyi, in discussing the personal and political moral nihilism which saturates our world, has written, and I quote, the two lines of antinomianism meet and mingle in French existentialism. Mademoiselle de Beauvoir hails the Marquis de Sade as a great moralist when Sade declares through one of his characters, I have destroyed everything in my heart that might have interfered with my pleasures. And this triumph over conscience, as she calls it, is interpreted in terms of her own Marxism, saying, Sade passionately exposes the bourgeois hoax, which consists in erecting class interests into universal moral principles. Humanism thus logically leads to this conclusion. No moral law, no ought. Every man his own God doing that which is right in his own heart. And this is the world today increasingly. But one of the great humanists of history, Nebuchadnezzar, said that he found his sanity and salvation in acknowledging the absolute sovereignty of God. Nebuchadnezzar tells us that after a long period of insanity, when he lifted up his eyes unto heaven, he says, Mine understanding returned unto me. And I bless the Most High, and I have praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar, who had earlier asserted his own sovereignty, his own ultimacy, and who had declared that there was no higher point in all creation than himself, now acknowledges the dominion and the sovereignty of God, and declares that all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? 
Nebuchadnezzar, in part here, echoed scripture. We fail to realize how well informed Nebuchadnezzar was. We know from scripture and from other sources that Nebuchadnezzar had an excellent espionage network so that he knew at all times, for example, when he was at war with Judea, what went on inside of the capital, what went on inside the king's palace. He was well informed of the fact that the prophet Jeremiah was totally opposed to the policies of King Zedekiah and the war. And so when the war was over and Jerusalem fell, one of the first things that his officers did was to seek out Jeremiah and extend to him their favor and their protection because they regarded him as a potential ally. Nebuchadnezzar, in order to understand any country he was waging war against, studied their religion. And so long before this event, years before, he had read the scriptures. And now as he speaks, various verses very obviously are echoed by him. For example, Psalm 145, verse 13. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Isaiah 40, verse 17. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are accounted to him less than nothing and vanity. Isaiah 43, verse 13. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let? Isaiah 43, verse 21. This people have I formed for myself. They shall show forth my praise. And so Nebuchadnezzar echoes scripture as he commits himself to the sovereignty of God. And he concludes, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise next door and honor the king of heaven, all whose works are true, his ways judgment, and those that walk in pride he is able to abase. This is a very telling confession and a very profound one. Because here Nebuchadnezzar strikes out at that which is the heart of humanism in every age and which the existentialist philosophers in our time have formulated as their faith. Nebuchadnezzar declares of God that all his works are true, because God is true, and his ways justice. Now the point we have been analyzing in our Thursday night classes on epistemology, the biblical theory of knowledge, is that, according to scripture, God is truth. Truth is inseparable from God. Now, the beginning of modern epistemology, of humanistic epistemology, was to separate the idea of truth from God. And to say, yes, we will acknowledge that there is a God, this is a real possibility, but truth is something abstract and separate from God and man, so that man can tell the truth or know the truth, but he can also lie. And God can tell the truth and know the truth, but he can also lie. 
This was the tempter's premise. Yea, hath God said? Has God necessarily spoken the truth? Truth is something that is separated from God. Now, what we find when we pursue humanistic epistemology is that truth first is divorced from God and then it is attached to man. Now, in terms of scripture, whatever God says and does is truth. Our Lord makes this emphatic. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. But in modern epistemology, truth is now man. What man says and does. One school of contemporary epistemologists or philosophers in the field of knowledge have actually held to a theory of infallibility. The infallibility of man. Now, this is logical. Infallibility must rest somewhere. And having denied it to God, these philosophers who will not for a moment admit the reality of God, they must ultimately ascribe it to something else. Some ascribe it to the state. In dialectical materialism, you have the doctrine of the infallibility of the dictatorship of the proletariat. In these humanistic philosophers, man is infallible. Man is truth. There is no standard above and beyond man, they hold. Sartre holds this. It is only logical, then, to say if there is no standard outside of man, no judgment, no criterion outside of man, then what man is and what man does is truth and justice. Because no concept can be abstracted and allowed to judge man. Man is his own ultimate. Man is judge, law, truth, everything. But Nebuchadnezzar recognized the impossibility of this. As a Babylonian, he had held previously to the ultimacy of process in the universe. Babylonian faith had its gods, but its gods too were a product of process. And process incarnated itself regularly. It was a semi-Hegelian philosophy, Hegelianism before Hegel. And Hegel recognized the antecedents he had in such thinking. And so the high point of process was the Babylonian Empire in that day and Nebuchadnezzar himself. So for Nebuchadnezzar there was no law, no justice, no truth beyond himself. This was his faith when he confronted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he declared, who is that God who is able to deliver you out of my hand? What kind of myth do you believe in? I am the high point of history, the high point of process, and there is no greater power than I. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was ready to recognize as a good Chaldean or Neo-Babylonian that tomorrow there could be a new high point and he would be obsolete. But for the moment, he was the truth. Now, he forswears everything that his Chaldean or Neo-Babylonian culture had taught him. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. 
all whose works are true, his ways judgment or justice, those that walk in pride, he is able to abase. For humanism, all man's works and words are true, arising out of his existential being. For man the sinner, coming into a ready-made world to claim his word as truth is insanity indeed. But it is a greater insanity to try to confuse Christianity and humanism. To make them one is sin and insanity compounded. This is the offense of so much of what passes for Christianity today. It makes man man's chief end. It makes man's salvation the highest value. It treats God as though he were only there as a spare tire, as an insurance agent, someone to make sure that man can prevail. This is the ultimate offense. This is indeed the implication and the conclusion of the tempter's offer. He shall be as gods, knowing good and evil, every man his own god. Thanks be to God, he is still on the throne, and it is God who shall prevail. And we in him, when with Nebuchadnezzar we forswear humanism and acknowledge the sovereignty of God, God is our Savior, God is our Lord, and our chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that it is Thou who art on the throne, that Thou art He who dost rule all things, and all the petty pretensions of men Thou shalt confound and bring to nothing. Use us, O Lord, to rebuild all things in terms of Thy work, in terms of Thy kingdom, terms of thy lordship. Bless and prosper us in thy service, and guide us day by day into all truth and righteousness in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson?
is it the difference between uh, the, the one system, like the Spanish, they were more thorough or more merciless, or what's the difference in the one place they succeed and then they well, first of all, we must disabuse ourselves by saying there is success and failure because we haven't seen the end result anywhere. The weakness of man is that he expects everything to take place in his lifetime. I know that one man, a very fine conservative, a, a very fine man, a superior man, has spent millions in a futile effort to try to win this country back to old American standards in his lifetime. He's wasted all that money. Why? Because to him, victory means I've got to see it. You see? And this is a fallacy. This is a tremendous fallacy. We cannot judge uh, the world today as a finished picture. And God's timing sometimes, in some cases, in some situations, extends over centuries. So, uh, we cannot look back and say, this happened and that happened, and why did this not work out? Our sense of time is limited by our lifetime and our lifespan. And we want things now. We want quick accomplishment. Now, in a sense, that's good if we recognize that it should be an incentive to work, to work harder, to achieve things. But uh, it is a serious limitation in that it leads to us to waste a great deal of energy and effort in futile things which aim at instant paradise. Now, this is one of the reasons why, whenever you have a revolutionary temper in a society, you have, instead of progress, retrogression. The essence of the revolutionary temper is that it wants things in, uh, at the latest today and better yesterday. A revolutionary mind says, we will not wait. All evils must be righted. All wrongs regressed, or we will destroy everything. Whenever you have that temper, and we're all prone to it, you only compound error. And uh, as a result, our historical judgment must never be influenced by that type of thinking. Any other questions? Yes. 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 Well, uh, I was in Mississippi again this week, but I was at uh, Southern Mississippi University in Hattiesburg rather than in Jackson. When I spoke uh, before the House of the Mississippi State Legislature earlier this spring. It was at the invitation of the Speaker of the House, who had been told of some of the writing and thinking I'm doing in the area of Christian Reconstruction. When I spoke before uh, congressmen and legislative aides in Washington three weeks ago, it was at the invitation of uh, the 
uh, Executive Director of the American Conservative Union and Congressman Phil Crane combined. And it's usually, uh, when I speak before such groups, it's at, at the request of someone in a legislative position who is familiar with my writings and feels that since I'm going to be in the area, I should be asked to speak. I was interested, incidentally, when I was in southern Mississippi this past week, the news stories tend to condition our thinking about what constitutes reality. The flood is an old story to us now, a few months ago, but it isn't in the flood country. A great deal of the Delta country and some parts of northern Mississippi, as well as areas in many other states, are still under water. And this past week, they had more heavy rains. So that, whereas earlier they were thinking, well, we cannot plant certain crops, but we can still get soybeans in, when I arrived at the beginning of the week, this past week, their hope was that, well, we can no longer get soybeans in, but there's one crop we can plant, even though it'll bring only a fifth the income, cucumbers for pickling. By the end of the week, with the continued rain, it was apparent that a good deal of the land would never dry out this summer, and there would be no planting of any kind. Then on top of that, if you noticed in today's paper, because when I was there they were beginning to get this, severe hailstorms as well as more tornadoes throughout the Middle West and into the South. So that the most significant thing in the President's address the other night was that now, too late after the wheat has been shipped out, the statement that there might be restrictions on the exporting of food. So there's a reason for this. We are facing very serious shortages in many, many essential foods. On top of this, some weather forecasters are predicting that this season will be followed by droughts all over the world, which will aggravate the matter. I think this is all very important to think about, especially when you realize that, as I uh, dealt with, and I've called attention to this before in my book, The Biblical Philosophy of History, there has been a re remarkable stepping up of the pace of natural disasters. And we believe nothing happens by chance. There are no accidents. Everything has a cause. And the ultimate cause of all things is God. So very clearly, there is a very real judgment all over the world developing in the form of natural disasters. And it would behoove us to think about it. Because certainly the situation is a critical one. And in a year or two, it can be very serious. There were about seven to eight million acres that were flooded, countless acreage, seriously affected by frosts. Now more tornadoes than ever before, and now 
devastating hailstorms and more rains. There are many, many of those areas where farmers will not have a penny of income through this year. Consider what that would mean to you. And many of them have not been able to return to their homes. They're still underwater. And with any kind of normal rainfall throughout that area where they do get summer rains, their farms will remain muddy all through the year. It's a disaster of tremendous dimensions. Very, very staggering when you are in the area and you talk to people and realize what is happening. I have one announcement to make. We will have our class on epistemology, the biblical doctrine of knowledge, this Thursday from 8 to 9 at the Guterres home. Let us bow our heads now for the benediction. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen.